Father, thank you again for another morning. A beautiful, crisp winter morning in this season where we remember and focus upon the great gift that we have in Jesus and how he came and demonstrated, exegeted, John says, who you are to us. And so as we begin this passage this morning, we pray that once again your Holy Spirit would be with us to bring out, draw out the beauties of Jesus and the hope that we have in Him. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We are in Acts, uh, well we're going to be in 23, but we're going to start in 22.30, kind of finish that chapter out. And um, just by way of review, what has happened so far? Let's get the context of where we're going to be today. What's happened so far? Paul enters Jerusalem, and what happens? Just a brief overview of where we are. He'd been told all the way back to Jerusalem that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, right? They've been prepared for that. And does that happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In spades, what happens to get him there? He starts teaching, doesn't he, in the temple? And they, they um, get mad at him, and so they start beating him. And then the Roman guards come in and break up the fight. And they immediately chain him, falsely, thinking that he's uh, an Egyptian terrorist. Right. And then, I don't remember what happened. So Paul walks into Jerusalem, and there's some Asian... Jews that are there for Passover time or whatever. And they've been spreading this rumor around that Paul is telling people in the outer regions, Jews in the outer regions, to forsake the law of Moses, embrace Gentiles. And why is that a bad thing? If it's true, why is that a bad thing? Threatens their way of life. Threatens their way of life. And what's the status, the, the geopolitical status right now between Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem? Jews are elevated above Gentiles. In Jewish thought, they think they're higher than Gentiles. Has there been some stuff going on that kind of causes them to have more of a animosity toward Gentiles? Do we know from history? Do you remember? Is that a no? Okay, there, there is a, a time here in Jerusalem when there is a, a, a great... Um, uh, friction between Jews and the Roman uh, authorities because they've had several insurrections and the Roman uh, rulers put it down very brutally. And so there's a Jewish national, make, make Israel great again, is going on in Jerusalem. And so uh, they're, they're very antagonistic to all Gentiles. And so Paul is walking in as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so this background he walks into the temple to do some pious Jewish things, and the mob, already at a fever pitch, sees him and just goes after him, starts beating him half to death. The Romans come down out of their little tower uh, that's near the temple place, and we'll see that again in this passage. Um, they come down, they arrest him, and, they, and, and he has to talk to the crowd. He, goes, he gives a very Hebrew kind of speech. He mentions the word Gentiles. They freak out again. The Romans... Hustle him into the barracks. He's in the barracks. Lysias, the tribune, wants to get you know, good information from him. And so the way to do that, of course, is to beat him. So 
they stretch him out to, to, to do whips, and he drops, hey, I'm a Roman citizen on him, and that kind of freaks him out. And so he's got this whole passage is about, he's a, about, it has the backdrop of, he's a Roman citizen and a citizen of Jerusalem all together, and, and both are kind of rejecting him because of the gospel, right? So you've got, uh, you've got Lysias, who stretches him out for, for whipping, and then he drops the Roman citizen thing. Does Lysias get any more answers of why the Jews were beating him in the temple than he had whenever he first arrested Paul? He's got no answers. He's, he still doesn't know what's going on, right? So, um, all right. When you need answers about the nature of charges against a Roman citizen in Judea, what better place to go than the elites of Judea? Uh, you're starting to get, you know, calm, reasoned response from people who are educated and in control of the people, right? So what does he do? He knows how to proceed. And here's what we see in chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler before your people. So Lysias, we'll stop there for now. So Lysias is unable to, to ascertain the charges against Paul, and he thinks his best option is to, uh, is to get uh, the Sanhedrin um, involved. Uh, good idea, bad idea? Is this going well? <laughs> Not so well. Right? Not so well. Uh, this is actually a theme that we'll see throughout the rest of Acts, where the Roman authorities don't know what to charge him with. They've got no grounds in which to charge him. So there's a constant rehearsal of, what's he guilty of? Uh, so, this Roman tribune calls a council, and uh, the smart guys tell us that he probably didn't have the authority to call a formal trial in, on Jewish territory, but he calls it informally. And so they come informally, and they probably met uh, up in what was called the Tower of Antonia, which was that tower that's right by the, the temple complex. Um, and it makes sense to call them, because the Jewish leaders would have heard about the riot. They would have been able probably more to understand why Paul, uh, uh, or at least what the legal issues were at play with Paul. So what would you anticipate a man beaten to a pulp, standing before the rulers of his people, what would you expect him to do? Plead for his life. You expect him to plead for his life, right? What does he do? What does he say? He has the floor, first words out of his mouth. What does he say? I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. The language is, I have lived my life before God. Right? 
The, the Greek there actually is a, is a very interesting word. Palatuomai. Uh, Palatuomai. And it has to do with discharging your duty as a citizen. Literally, it could be read, Brothers, I have lived as a citizen before God with all good conscience to this very day. Citizen of whom? Both parties. He's a Roman citizen and he's a Jew. Is that where he's going? Is that what he means? His number one priority is to God. Is to God. He's a citizen of God's. Um, why is that offensive to the high priest? They're used to having the power. And by saying, I, as a Christian, am living out my life in good conscience before God, what's the implication there to everybody in the room? The you, ain't. you ain't. Exactly. Now, the interesting thing here, it's a little bit of a background. This high priest, well, first of all, uh, you, you have him on trial, and then we see the jujitsu thing again. We've seen throughout Acts. You know, when they get in front of these authorities, they take the charges that are against them, and they flip them on their head, and then turn the turn the focus back to you're guilty. You you shouldn't be judging me. You're guilty before God for what you're doing. And here we have an example: the high priest orders Paul to be smacked in the mouth. Had Paul been charged with anything? Nope. Had they had any deliberation over his guilt yet? Any deliberation recorded. And he's already rendering judgment. And that flies right in the face of what we saw in Leviticus 19. You know, do things proper in your legal settings and all that kind of stuff. So he has uh, this clear um, situation here where he shows that how hip hypocritical they are. And he uses a term called whitewashed wall. Does that sound familiar? Who have we heard use the term whitewash before? Jesus. Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Jesus uses this whitewash tombs, talking about how you whitewash and you got dead man's bones inside. Paul may also be using uh, a phrase or, or imagery from Ezekiel here, where Ezekiel talks about a wall that is in decay and falling down and about ready to just you know cave in on itself, and it's whitewashed over to hide the decay. Kind of a similar imagery that, that we see in Ezekiel. Um, you want to judge me while you stand there contend before God. That's really the, 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 um, the, uh, the statement there. So the statement that he makes is, is somewhat provocative. You know, the, the uh, I have a clear conscience, therefore you don't. And this high priest, uh, I'll get to this real quick. Josephus tells us about this guy. Uh, Ananias, uh, not a good guy. Uh, known to be a crook, actually, taking bribes and telling his servants to pilfer from the tithes that came in for the common priests. This, he would send his guys in there to, to rob from those, uh, the monies that had come in from the people. He was known for his pro-Roman sentiment, uh, sentiments. He, was, he, he had extreme cruelty in the way he, he ruled. He was very greedy. He ruled for about 11 to 12 years. Um, and at one point, he was summoned to Rome for his part in a Jewish ambush of a number of Samaritan pilgrims. This is, a, this is a stellar high priest you got going here. Eventually, he was killed by Jewish zealots at the outbreak of the war with Rome. So he's got about 12 years to go. And Paul says, what? God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. So in a sense, what Paul is saying is somewhat prophetic. He's about to, I mean, in about 
12 years, he gets assassinated by Jewish zealots. He's not a good guy. Um, all right, so here's this reprehensible person standing in the vestments of one in the role of intercessor between the people and God. Um, and Paul sees this as a hypocrisy uh, for Ananias to have him struck. He sits as judge, and yet he should be judged for breaking the law. Um, all right. Here's a question that kind of leapt out at me as I'm reading this. Is Paul acting consistent with turn the other cheek here? <laughs> the way he responds? Not really. Not really. Uh, Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If it, and, and this guy certainly is evil. Uh, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Is that going on here? <laughs> He's a little bit ticked. I, I want to say uh, I love Scripture for this. Because the Word of God doesn't hide the flaws of people. He, he brings out Paul's response is an angry response. And there's some of that we see in Paul's letters, this kind of righteous indignation thing going on with him. And we certainly see that here. Um, however, given the situation, I think I can grant Paul a little humanity here. Um, he just is had about enough. So what was the response uh, uh, to Paul by those who, attend, who were attending? What did, how did they respond to him talking back to the high priest that way? What did they say? Do you know who you're talking to? You know talking? What's his response to that? He didn't know. He didn't know? I, I, I read it sarcastically in my mind, but I don't know if that's how it's supposed to some, some be. Some have said that. That's a high priest? You know, that, that's the kind of the feel of this is the high priest you got going? Some have said that it's that or, or that Paul's eyesight wasn't that great and he didn't know, you know who the guy was. Uh, some have said that because there's a, there was a recent change in, high, in the high priest, maybe he just wasn't aware he'd been out of Jerusalem for a while, wasn't aware who the guy was. Some have said that because this was an informal hearing, he didn't have the vestments of the high priest on. Whatever. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that that's true. Uh, I, I think, I think what, where Paul is, is actually going here is, uh, is what one, uh, one guy says. Uh, I spoke without taking note of the fact that he was high priest. I, I, didn't, I didn't take note of the role. And that's where the focus goes, respecting the role, not the man. Is that instructive to us? Regardless of what somebody is doing, it's what they ought to be doing. We respect what they ought to be doing, right? The, the role that they ought to be. Uh, maybe rather it's than difficult when you don't see evidence. That's true. That's true. And you see that with Ananias, right? You have evidence of this guy is, is a reprobate, and he's in this place of being intercessor between God and the people. Uh, and yet, Paul, uh, you see from this point forward just a radical change in his demeanor toward the group because of the role of the high priest. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a good leader, you know is a leader without anybody telling you they're the leader. Right. Right. 
because the demeanor they carry, the, the calm and whatever. Yeah, yeah, this guy didn't have that apparently. But Paul, being made aware that this guy, for whatever reason, or taking note at least, that he was the high priest, changes his demeanor. Uh, and he makes certain that they understand that he's a good Jew, right? I mean, he even quotes <laughs> Exodus 22. Yeah, I know this law. I, I'll, I'll obey this law. Um, all right, so look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. We'll stop there for now. Um, yeah, calm, reasoned. Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. <laughs> <laughs> you think? You think? It almost seems like Paul was like, yeah, I know the Roman soldiers back right there and they're going to come get me, so let's just make this happen. You're right. <laughs> over and over and over. Again, he's demonstrating something, isn't he? The, 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 the dark heart of man that will not accept the gospel. Their hostility to him is so profound that he can say one phrase and an uproar happens. Why would he... Uh, Paul saw that the reason for his trial was hope and the resurrection of the dead is what the, the ESV says. And that language is kind of uh, interesting there because the hope, the implication is the hope of Israel. And part of the hope of Israel is that end times kind of thing, a hope of the resurrection of the dead. So he kind of splits them up and puts it out there. Now, why would he make that statement out of the blue? Let's just go ahead and nail it down. Why would he make that out of the blue? The Sadducees didn't believe that and the Pharisees did and they were going to argue with themselves. So you've got two groups. You've got the Pharisees, of which Paul was one. He's misdirecting from attention on him to... Some have argued that. Some see this as a ploy. Some say that, you know, you have the two parties, the Pharisees, who believe in the hope of the resurrection, and the Sadducees... This is why they're sad, you see. Do it, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> who were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they had this whole view that's very fundamental in the worldview is where are we going what are we doing and why it's very different the, the Sadducees they believed um, in just the first five books and they saw there was no resurrection or they believed that there was no resurrection uh, in in the first five books of Moses which Jesus corrected him on that point didn't he he said, and he points to Genesis. Let's look at the first of the first five books. And he says, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, Jesus said. He points back to that to correct the Sadducees on their misunderstanding of the resurrection. But they still held to that. And Paul identifies with the, the party that believes at least in the concept of resurrection, 
the Pharisees. And the resurrection of Jesus was the issue that put him on trial with the Jews. That's the big deal. Is he the Messiah? Did he demonstrate it through the resurrection? And that's where he goes. So in Paul's subsequent speeches, we'll see in Acts, he goes there hard every time. The resurrection, the factual, the historicity of the resurrection is the key issue uh, in, in his defenses uh, from this point forward. All right. One, one commentator has said, The Pharisees were theologically ripe for the Christian gospel that Christ had risen from the dead and that this proved him to be the hoped-for Messiah. And in earlier in Acts, remember chapter 5 uh, with Peter and John, the Pharisaic part of the Sanhedrin had come to the defense of Christians because of the hope of the resurrection, because of this issue of the resurrection. So for Paul and Luke, Christ was the fulfillment of that Pharisaic hope. Paul's statement is not an accident or a ruse. He's actually trying to save some here. Um, all right. So whatever's going on, who suddenly becomes Paul's defenders? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. How far do they go with this? They find nothing wrong with this man. Nothing wrong with this man. Pharisees. There's nothing wrong with this man. He believes in the resurrection. He's good with us, you know? <laughs> so is that because of what Paul said or just to shove it in the Sadducees' face? Yes. <laughs> I think so. I don't know. I don't know their heart, but it sure seems that way. They go so far as to say, what if, he, what if God did speak to him? What if an angel did speak to this man? And so as the place erupts, who becomes Paul's defender? Who becomes his defender? The Roman Tribune becomes his defender against his own people. With friends like these, it's he needs anemones. It is completely upside down here. The, the change in the council, it, it, it's almost akin to whenever Paul reveals that he's a Roman, because it's they're they're you know they're all they're all against him, they're all against him, and he reveals this fact, and suddenly everybody's like back pedal, like whoa, 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 okay, right, here we go, let's let's reevaluate this situation, right. Right. And so with that in line, I mean, you understand why Lysias rushes, rushes in to protect him because he's a Roman citizen. You don't want him dying on his watch. Right. Well, I think he's also seeing more and more that Paul didn't do anything against Roman law. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything he's seeing is a, a Jewish argument. Right. Right. And you'll see that as we go through Acts. That comes back to this is a this is an argument over the, the finer points of their law it has nothing to do with Rome. Uh, we'll see that again and again. And so, Lysias then takes Paul back to the barracks. Uh, and presumably, he's in detention. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now Luke ends here with a very tender scene. Uh, there's Paul, alone in detention. The Lord had prepared him for everything that had happened in Jerusalem. Right? He knew it was coming. It was still hard. still difficult for him to go through. I mean, nobody likes getting beat on. But he knew it was coming. He knew there's purpose behind it to be able to testify to the Jews to the reality of Christ. Um, but where's this going? I'm done testifying 
I'm still in chains, right? He's, in the, he's, in, he's still in chains. And Jesus says to him, You testified for me, to me, to the Jews in Jerusalem. That's kind of a well done, isn't it? Kind of give a well done, well done, good and faithful servant, kind of a partial deal. And then he says, now I'm going to take you the same place. You're going to do the same thing for me in Rome. Congratulations, you get a promotion. <laughs> right. Right. What, is, what does that do to a person in chains when Christ appears to them and says, good job in Jerusalem. Let's go do the same thing in Rome. It's a double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. Because with that, you know what you're going to have to go through. Right. But you also um, know what you're going through, why you're going through it. The purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. he, has, he has purpose in the suffering that he's about to endure, right? He knows that it's going to be hard. He knows that he's up for a lot more uh, surprises and how things play out. What, what's the significant word that gets repeated uh, in that statement? What's the, what's the word? You. Well, there's you, yes. The significant word. Testify. Testify. That's the significant word. Faithfulness pushes him, calls him to speak, to give testimony to who Jesus is and what he's done. Remember when we started Acts, we, went, we first went through John 1 and John 17. John 1, who Jesus is, in the beginning was the Word. John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer, what He's doing for His people. That's the whole theme of Acts, is, is the Holy Spirit working through the church to make that known to the people around them, both Jews and Gentiles. That's the whole thing. And Paul is doing this again. He's done it in Jerusalem. And he's going to be doing it all along the way to Rome. And we'll see it several times. All of the trouble that Paul had gone through these past two days was ultimately caused by his testifying to Christ before the Jews. Now his trip to Rome, with all of the legal hassle that's going to be involved there, uh, would also lead him to testify to Christ. And so with verse 11, we have the final portion of Acts mapped out. We know what's going to happen. We know where it's going. But he begins with these words, take courage. Some of the smart folks note that in the New Testament, the Greek word that's used here for take courage is only spoken by Jesus. He's the only one that uses it. And what an encouragement that is. Already, Paul hears a, a well done for his testimony in Jerusalem, and he's counted faithful enough, <laughs> with the double-edged sword there, he's counted faithful enough to continue that on to Rome. What's the basis for Paul to take courage? What, what, why can he take courage? God is with him. God is with him. He's, on the right he's, he's in the right path. Christ is with him, right? Paul writes to the Philippians, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And here is the one who began the good work in Paul, telling him, take courage, let's finish the work. That's got to be massively encourage, encouraging. In 1533, Mary became Queen of England and sought desperately to return it to Catholic rule. 
She immediately sought to strike at the leadership of the Protestant movement in England by executing the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and two bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they were burned at the stake. Latimer went faster. Ridley was a slow, smoldering burn. It was very painful, very gory. But at the burning of these two bishops, um, Latimer calls out to his friend Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Ridley, who died later than Latimer in the same burning, um, was heard to call out, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, a testifier of thee. Even unto death, I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm, England, and deliver it from all her enemies. For centuries, the courage of Christ has steeled the hearts of Christian men and women to undergo horrific things for the sake of the gospel. And I'm just trying to fight the sin in my own heart. <laughs> I need to hear Jesus say to me, take courage. Suffering happens in a lot of different ways, right? Paul, uh, uh, Philip has talked about this from the pulpit. Just because it's, we're not being you know, shot at or, or, or tied to a stake doesn't mean that we're not suffering. When we're fighting the sin in our own heart, that's a form of suffering because we're denying ourselves and following Him. It's painful. And we need to hear that again and again, take courage. On the internal battles, we need to hear take courage because He who began a good work in us is faithful to us. It's going to happen. Keep fighting. And I think in doing that, it steals us for the external battles that are going to happen. You'll be mocked at work. You'll be ridiculed in, at school. You'll family situations. You'll be mocked or whatever. Take courage. That's the command. That's the encouragement. That's the call of Jesus to His people to steal ourselves and not to be fearful of oh, I'm going to fail or I'm going to do. No, He who began a good work in us is faithful. And he's faithful to complete it. Any questions? Any comments? All right, let's pray and we will be excused to uh, go to the next service. Jesus, thank you for being our comfort. Thank you for being the basis, the reason for us to have heart that in the midst of our failures, we rest on your success. In the midst of our sin, we rest on your righteousness. Would you help us to take courage by putting our trust in you and not ourselves? By putting our trust in you and not the reasonableness of our uh, accusers? Would you teach us to put our trust in you and not our own um, assessments of where we are, the accusations that we hurl against ourselves? Lord, help us to repent rightly, but rest in the finished work of Jesus. 
We pray all these things in His name. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.